0: Okay, so I'm glad you're here, and uh, you know this this whole series of of talks is basically it's kind of like a, a spiritual diary in a way, and I'm just trying to record just just um, relating to God basically. One time, you know, every once in a while, someone asks me to describe the class, and and I just say that. One way I described it is, is basically it's couples therapy between us and God, you know, mm-hmm. just because it's all about our relationship with God and and uh, and trying to make headway in that. And so 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 I'm, I'm always just trying to analyze our relationship with God and, and trying to think of, like, where are where are the opportunities to connect? And just as importantly, where where are those places where we disconnect? You know, and, and trying to find, so to speak, the computer viruses that sort of enter our minds and hearts in terms of, like, where our thinking goes astray. So, so one of the things that, that I want to focus, the, the main thing that I really want to focus on today is just the whole question of, um, does God care? Right? Is, is God involved in my life? Because one of the... Because I think that, again, a lot of people... The, the problem is, is that most people don't think about these things at all. Or if they think about them, they don't think about them more than like three seconds. You know, before the phone rings or the doorbell rings or they get another email or whatever it is. It's like these things you have to actually concentrate on and you have to think through. You know, it reminds me of something that I heard uh, in the name of the Katsuka Rebbe, that the Katsuka Rebbe, someone asked him like, what is, what? why are you so great? And he said that basically that he's capable of thinking about one thought, one question for a period of hours. Now this is going back to the mid-1800s basically. And that that ability even then was considered very, very rare that that to be able to just focus on one question and to stay on that one question and to continue to think about it you'd be amazed actually you'd be amazed just how deep you can actually go and how deep you aren't going in terms of like your 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 bread and butter level of inquisition into your own lives into the big questions of the world you know now One of the interesting things is is that they say that someone who learns, say, I'm making up these numbers, but someone who learns for five hours in a row, say, that it can't be compared to someone who learns the same topic for five sessions of one hour. In other words, there's this cumulative level or this momentum in terms of penetration and depth that happens from thinking about something over a period of time that can't be captured in short bursts now there are advantages that you won't equal in terms of the breakthroughs that you can make if you just do it in short bursts but if you do it in short bursts there are there are benefits to doing that as well they're not the same benefits but you're able to live with the topic and questions can occur to you that you 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 might that may not occur to you otherwise So the thing is, is that we have to do both systems simultaneously. We have to think deeply and we have to live with the questions that we have. Um, Always looking for new insights into them. So so one of the one of the things that just in terms of my exploration of of spirituality and just talking to people and, and just 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 observations is that there are a lot of people. And I think this is a giant category of of people in the world who, they just don't think about God. So if you ask them, do you believe in God? They'll say, well, I don't know. Or they'll say no, right? Or they'll say, yeah, whatever. But clearly they haven't thought about it much. But let's talk about the people who say no or I don't know. And you start talking to them about the incredible levels of complexity in creation. And and is it possible that somehow this just happened by itself? This incredibly, massively, ridiculously complex system which exists around us, right? Is it possible that it just happened by itself? And, and if it did, we know that one of the laws of, of physics, I don't know what it is, is that it just something left alone will sort of like devolve into entropy. It just sort of like collapses. If you just think of it, let's say you build a house and you just have a house there. If you don't maintain the house, the house will collapse over a period of time. It just will. <coughs> if someone doesn't maintain their health, their health falls apart. You, you, you see this. The, the examples are, you don't have to look very hard to find examples of things that are not maintained falling apart. So how could it be that this enormously complex world just sort of came into itself? All right, well, that in itself requires, like, you know, a lot of belief. That's kind of the irony of all this, because you can either believe that there's a God who's maintaining creation, or you have to believe in order not to believe in God, right? You have to believe in so many other things. That the, the irony is, the paradox is, is that people who aren't believers, quote-unquote, are more believers than people who are believers. Because they have to believe in and accept entire packages of beliefs in order to explain what's going on right now. Or you can say, I just believe that there's a God. You just believe in one thing as opposed to believing in ten things that you can't prove. Or a hundred things or a thousand things that you can't prove. So, it's actually quite ironic that non-believers are actually bigger believers than believers. Not only that, but just while we're on the subject, there's something hilarious in my mind about atheists. Atheists is that category of people who know that God doesn't exist. Now, God deliberately designed the world, you should know, that he can't be proven. That was deliberate on God's part. But... God also cannot be disproven. He can't be disproven. So, an atheist is someone who knows that God doesn't exist. It's not that he believes that God doesn't exist. He knows that God doesn't exist. Which means that, first of all, what's the difference between a believer and an atheist? Is that a believer believes that God exists. An atheist believes that God doesn't exist. Since it can't be proven... So he just believes that God doesn't exist. So they're believers and we're believers. They believe that God doesn't exist. We believe that God does exist. But here's the funny part. An atheist doesn't just believe that God doesn't exist. He knows that God doesn't exist. Which means that an atheist is actually a religious fanatic. Right? Because he knows. But he knows something that can only be believed. It can't be proven. And yet he knows. So atheists are religious fanatics. That's, that's, it's just one of the many ironies that we live with, you know? Anyway, so, so I'm still getting to the point here. The point is, is that many people, if you start to talk to them about just how did, where did the world come from? Why are you here? How is it, you know, there's so much direction, there's so much, there's so much structure, you know, one of the things that, that, that strikes me, just about love, hopefully we're going to talk about love more today. We're going to get to that. But, um, but uh, you know, people are really hardwired. Our brains are really hardwired. And I'll give you an example of what I'm trying to say. You know, why don't people fall passionately in love with? I mean, I'm talking about romantically in love with, say, a wall or a light bulb. Right. Or a waste paper basket or a painting like, you know, we think, oh, well, you know, let's talk about just regular classic romantic love right now. Well, you know, there's such a well, there's such a variety. Do you do you like blondes? Do you like redheads? Do you like brunettes? Do you like tall girls, short girls, like strong guys, brainy guys? Like, it seems like, wow, there's such a variety. But if you think about the spectrum of things that there are in the world, that's the tiniest, the tiniest little part of the spectrum. Human beings. What about rabbits? What about trees? Right? What about People magazine covers? (laughs) What about, you know, what about hammers? Why shouldn't people be falling in love with hammers? You know? We just accept this tiny little spectrum within creation as like the only possible options. There's zillions of options to fall in love with. I, you know what? I want mom, dad. I want you to introduce you to this table that I saw today. Yeah, like, come here. Don't be shy. Come, you know, you're legging in this table. You know, or really. So what I'm trying to say is, but you don't see that happening. You don't see that happening. And then when you appreciate all the other things that it could be, you realize, well, that is kind of strange, that really the tiniest little subspectrum of things that exist we fall in love with, right, that, that suggests that we're hardwired in that way. You know, so in other words, it's another insight of the degree of structure there is in, in the world. We have to appreciate that, just God's hand, how he's guiding us, basically, but here's the point. The point is that, that many people, if you press them, and you really like force them to kind of think about these things, they'll say, yeah, there's a God. There is a God. And so now, here's, here's what I've been building to. Here's the point. <clears throat> to believe in God to understand God, God as we understand him, God as he exists, it's not enough to just believe that he exists. That's, that's the point. The point is, is that if you then ask the person the next question, okay, so you do believe in God, I do believe in God. So you think that's the end of the conversation? Ah, I got him to think, I got him to admit that he believes in God. You think that's the, be- you think that's the end of the conversation? That's not even the beginning of the conversation. Here now is the crucial question. Do you believe that God is involved in the world and God is involved in your life? That's the crucial question. That's the crucial question. Does God care? Does God know you? That's, that's the question. And we've had historically, in terms of the history of philosophy, the history of religion, there have been great movements that have said the following, yes, there is a creator. Yes, there is a creator, but the creator abandoned his creation. And he's not involved. How could it be that a God who's so great, who could create such an incredible system of this world, care about human beings? So this is the radical, the radical approach of Judaism, which is the truth. Which is that God is involved in our lives and God does care. That's the incredible thing. That's the breakthrough that people have to make if they want to believe. So I want to, I want to go further into this. So the question is, where do we see it? How do we know? So I'm standing up here and I'm telling you that God's involved in the world, God's involved in our life, right? How do we know? Where do we see it? So I just want to go through some sources. And just show you where we see this idea. So maybe I'll start with with the most compelling. There a lot of these, I mean, they're all kind of personal, whatever you might think something else is more compelling but But to me, just in terms of our theology, let me just state it here. You know, if you want to talk about real estate, like valuable real estate, like downtown, you know. Hong Kong, or, or like the middle of London, or like Park Avenue, New York, or Rodeo Drive, or Bel Air, or something like that. If you want to talk about valuable real estate. I don't know that there's more valuable real estate than in the Jewish prayer service between Baruch Hu and Shema. You know? That's the introduction of the morning prayers, building up to Shema. That's You know, there's like... You could count the number of letters there. Every single there... Every single thing there is like... You know, you're not going to be fitting in any new ideas in there. That's like really... That's like the most. Okay. So, given that... What if I were to tell you that there's a thought that's repeated twice? One thought that's repeated two times in that very small area. You would say, well, you know what? That's a very important thought. (laughs) Obviously... The sages went out of their way not just to mention it, but to mention it two times in this incredibly important area. So, what is the thought? So, let me read it to you. It says, it says that God, with compassion and in his goodness, renews daily, perpetually, the work of creation. And then it says it again a few lines later. In other words, what does that mean? That means that the whole premise that God created the world, put nature as a sort of like an autonomous mechanism in place, and then checked out of the world, that's not a Jewish premise at all. What we say is is that God creates the world, and then whatever an infinitesimal amount of time, less than a nanosecond, Recreates the world, and recreates the world, and recreates the world, and recreates the world. So, the idea is that God, by definition, is not only not abandoning the world that he once created and has now fled, because it's disappointed him, or because it bores him, or whatever it is. But God is constantly creating and recreating the world. What could be closer than that? What could be closer than that? God's thorough involvement in every single moment of creation. If you want a way uh, of visualizing this, you know, back in the day, now everything is sort of digital, but back in the day, they would have film strips, and each each, each film strip would be composed of isolated stills, like like a snapshot, and they would run them together quickly, and then that would create the illusion of movement. Right? But they were just snapshots. So... In some way, that's kind of what this world is. Creation is infinity? Creation is infinity? Well, God invests his infinity within creation, but creation itself doesn't equal God. In other words, God fills the entire universe and then exists dimensions beyond the universe. Otherwise, if you say that God equals the universe and the universe equals God, that's not Judaism. That's actually a different religion. We say God creates the universe, fills the entirety of the universe, and exists dimensions beyond as well. So, but the point is that moment to moment is a snapshot. But because it's being run so quickly, it creates the the seamless illusion of continuity. Like it's always been going on like this. You see? So, in other words... I'm bringing this to show you how involved God actually is. And that this premise doesn't even exist in Judaism. That God could have created the world and maybe he checked out, maybe he didn't check out. Like, that's not even a discussion point. Because God is constantly creating and recreating the universe. Alright, so now, where do we see another example of this? So, a, a a classic example of this is when God speaks at Mount Sinai. So, this is, this is maybe the, the turning point of all, of all of human civilization. The entire world. God is now speaking directly to the world, right? And you should know that Christianity holds by the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. That God gave the Torah to the Jewish people. You should know that Islam holds by the revelation at Mount Sinai. That God gave the Torah to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai? All monotheism in the world, all different branches, all hold that this event happened. Okay? And what distinguishes Judaism, by the way, you should know, is that we had approximately two and a half million people there witnessing and experiencing this level of prophecy and revelation, whereas the other religions have one central prophet as opposed to Two and a half million. And that one prophet says to everyone else, trust me. Right? I don't want to trust you. I trust two and a half million people who have the same level of prophecy. And you know what? God who gave it to two and a half million people on the level of prophecy simultaneously, if he wants to make any emendations, right, he's going to call a large number of people again. Not only that, But it says in the Torah itself that nothing here is going to change. Don't add and don't subtract. And then God goes further. If you want to see it, he says that anyone who adds or subtracts is a false prophet. By definition. By definition, a false prophet is someone who tries to add or subtract from this revelation. The mitzvahs are eternal. They're the foundation of the universe. And it's forever. Okay? That's why the Jews are so stubborn. Go, why are the Jews so stubborn? Why? Because it says, this is what it is. Okay. So now, let's get back to the point. So this is the moment in the history of creation. God is speaking. God is introducing himself to everyone there. What, how is God going to introduce himself? Well, I'll tell you what I would have said. Right? Here's what I would have said. I'm God, I'm the one who created all of this, the entire heavens and the earth. I'm the one who created you. That would make sense. I think that if you thought about it, it probably you would say the same thing. If you had to write God's speech, you'd probably say the same thing. What could be more compelling than than hearing the voice of the one who made everything around you? I can't imagine anything more compelling than that. And we know that's not what God said. It's not what God said. God said, I am God, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And what's the point? So the commentators say the following. God is telling us, you know something? Yeah, I made all this. Yeah, I made all this. But I'm the one who's with you in your trouble. That's how God introduces himself. I'm the one, you know, when you're down and when you're suffering or whenever anything's going on in your life, whatever it is, having a good day, you're having a bad day, you're well, you're sick, whatever it is, you're broke, whatever it is, I'm the God who's with you at these moments. Now, what's closer than that? What's closer than that? And isn't that gorgeous that God chose to introduce himself in that way? I mean, is there anything more intimate than that? Than saying, I'm the one who's with you? During all of your struggles? You know, there's another example of this. And we're going to hit on a medrash in a moment, which um, kind of speaks to this some more. When, when, when God spoke to Moshe, and he gave him the mission of taking the Jews out of Egypt... He appears to him in a burning bush. All right, so it's not God himself, but this was kind of the nature of the prophetic vehicle, it was a burning bush. And he hears God's voice coming out of the burning bush. By the way, one of my favorite teachings, I heard this from Rabbi Matus Yahu Solomon, who is the spiritual head of the Lakewood Yeshiva, said the following that, um, you know, it's an interesting question, which is, You know, Moshe, Moses walks up to the burning bush and then God says to him, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. Right? Famous line. So the question is, why didn't God tell him to take off his shoes before he stepped on the holy ground? In other words, God could have said, you're about to walk on holy ground, take off your shoes. Right? You hear? So... Seemingly, God waited for Moshe to do something wrong and then God's correcting him? Like, what's, what, what's the, what's going on here? So listen to this answer, a fantastic answer. So Rabbi Solomon said the following. He said, the ground wasn't holy until Moshe stepped on it. Meaning to say, hear the point, that Moshe's desire to seek the truth, he saw something phenomenal, something that was like, Almost supernatural. A a bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed by the fire. Moshe wants to investigate. That desire to understand more fully the world, the nature of what's around him, that desire to investigate it, that's what transformed the ground into holy ground. He made it holy. And then once it was holy, then God says, "Take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. You got a place is never holy, unless and until the human comes and makes it holy.: Yeah, and I'll say, a holy place. I'll, I'll say it a different way, which is I heard this from Rabbi Manus Friedman. The idea is that everything is holy, but the point is because God fills the whole world. But the point is is that our job is to reveal the holiness. So 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 once he investigated it, he opened up this enormous window and he revealed the holiness. And I'll tell you something else. I heard this in the name of the Rebbe. That other people saw the burning bush and they just walked by it. You see? You think it's so simple. We're we're surrounded by burning bushes, guys. We're, you know, my mother, God bless her, she should rest in peace. And this is in Manhattan. We would walk down the streets of Manhattan and my mother would stop me because she'd see a a little tiny green buds on the branch of a tree. And she'd say, look, look, you know, there's not a lot of nature in Manhattan. You know, you can walk by and there's skinny trees. These are not like redwoods, you know, (laughs) you know, so it's not that impressive, honestly, you know, but she would stop. Look, look. I'll tell you something, a practice we should all do. Friday night when you make Kiddush, while you're making Kiddush, you're supposed to look into the candlelights. And it says that it rectifies one five hundredth of your vision. And that's a mystical idea, but, but I'll tell you how I understand it. Is that, you see, the idea is that during the week, we're so busy with everything that we actually get blinded literally blinded on some level to what's around us. And on Shabbos, you take a moment and you just appreciate everything that's around you. And what are we doing when we're making Kiddush? We're saying that God created the world. And if we take a moment to look at the candlelights, right, then we're restoring our vision, literally. We're restoring our vision and appreciating what's around us. But here's the point. God could have come to Moshe as a bird, right? Or maybe it's just going to be a voice out of nowhere. How does God come to Moshe? From a burning bush. Because he says the Jewish people are on fire right now, basically. The Jewish people are suffering right now. And I'm with them amidst their suffering. Again, again, what's the point of this? People believe that there's a God but what people have to understand, and that this, is, this, this breakthrough in terms of thought is as great or greater than believing in God, is what I'm coming to realize, is that people have to also understand, or more importantly understand, that that God who exists is with us in every moment of our lives. And by the way, I heard in the name of the Spasemes that when it says that every time we're, we're being, we, we get rescued from anything in our life, that's God taking us out of Egypt. So in other words, this foundation, this idea that God is taking us out of Egypt, really means that God is thoroughly involved in every aspect of our life on an ongoing basis. Just like I also heard, also this is also from the Spasemes, by the way. I heard this from Reb Shlomo. That when God said to Abraham, Lech Lecha, which means go to Israel, right? what he was also saying to him was never stop moving. (laughs) It wasn't just get to Israel, cross that border. It was never stop moving. Lech Lecha, that's your thing. Always keep on going. Whatever you're doing, never stop, never give up. Okay. Now, Now, you could ask yourself a question. You could say, Well, God's involved in my life, and He's creating, and He's recreating the world. But you know what? I look around, and that stoplight's where it was a moment ago, and those mountains are where they were thousands of years ago, and you know, the liquor that I want to buy is still not on sale. You know, so it's like, What's really changing? You're telling me that we're amidst this dynamic flux. There's this is dynamic flux going on, right? Well, you know what? I look around and I see a pretty stagnant place. And that's why I think God's not involved in anything. Because the world looks the same to me as it did yesterday and last week and last year, and I'm still dealing with all the problems that I had whenever I had them. So, what's changing exactly? So, now listen to this. You know. The Medrash records a question that a very wealthy Roman uh, matron had. So she was like, you know, she had a lot of money in like the height of Rome. So that, that was probably a lot of money. She probably had a pretty, pretty luxurious lifestyle. And she asked Rabbi Yossi, one of the sages, she said, what's God been doing since he created the world? Hmm. Which is Which is our question. That's our question. I look around, and you want to tell me how dynamic everything is? I don't see any dynamism at all. She says, well, then what's God been up to? And you know what God said? He's been making shuduchim. He's bringing husband and wife together. Again, that's that's awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. He could have said anything. He could answer that question anyway. And by the way, the way the Medrish plays out, I don't want to focus on it so much. It's famous Medrish, is that she goes, oh, what's the big deal? I can bring husband and wife together. So she had a whole kind of small army in terms of our house staff of, of male and female servants. So she made a big, you know, sun, young, moon style, uh, you know, wedding ceremony where she paired up everyone. And then, and she was like, so, you know, she's disproving Rabbi Yossi. And then she comes back, like, a very short time later, maybe even the next day, and says, you're right, you're right, this one blackened that one's eye, and this one broke that one's arm. No one wanted to be married to that other person. You know, I can't do it. But when God does it, right, something incredible. But again, now, I want to add a thought to this. So this is from me, but anyway. So, so again, hear the language of closeness, hear the language of intimacy. That how is Rabbi Yossi explaining God's closeness? By bringing, by bringing people together with love. So the word for love in Hebrew is Ava. Ava is the number 13 in Gematria. So when you bring two people together with love, Right? I love you and you love me. That's 13 plus 13, which is 26, which is the name of God. That's the Yudke Vavke. In, in other words, look how deep that is. How, is. how is God manifesting himself in this world? By bringing couples together? By, by opening our eyes to the amount of love that's around us constantly. Because here's this incredible correlation between God and love. Between two people loving each other, right? Love is 13. 13 and 13 is 26, which is the name of God. yud in Hey and vav in other So in other words, in other words this, is, this is the ongoing dynamic that's happening in the world. In other words, what is God doing since he created the world? So now we can answer the question a different way. He's loving us. He's loving us. He's loving us. And what are we doing? So now here's the question. Here's the question. You know, have you ever heard the expression, a selfish lover? Selfish lover kind of just sits there, right? Kind of just doesn't move. You know, so here we are, immersed, immersed in in Godliness. We're swimming in godliness. And the question is, are we engaging God? Right? Now that we understand his closeness, and we can talk, I want to bring another medrash just to talk about his closeness in a a moment. But the real question is, is that, is what are we doing? Are we reciprocating that love? And reciprocating that love is the name of the game. That's called dveikis. And that's, or in English, cleaving. And that's the hallmark of tzaddikim. That's what it's all about. You see, you have a lot of people, like Reb Shlomo would say all the time, he would say, you know, there's so many people who are doing everything right and they're doing everything wrong at the same time. Meaning to say, They're keeping everything, they're learning everything, and on some level it's all good and beautiful, and by the way, it's better than not learning everything and not doing everything. It's infinitely better than that. But nonetheless, they're still missing it. They're still missing it because they're not engaged in this aspect of cleaving. I'll put it another way. There are many paradigms in terms of our relationship with God. We have master and servant. We have king and subject. We have parent and child, right? We have friends, best friends even. But the one that the Talmud calls the Holy of Holies, what paradigm is called by them the Holy of Holies? That's Shir Shirim, the Song of Songs, which is us and God as two lovers. That's that's the point. That's the point. When you see, when people talk about Sadiqim, what is that extra quality? What difference... Is, what differentiates someone who say a Talmud Chachem, someone who just knows a lot, and someone who's a tzaddik? What's the difference? You know, because there's a big difference. You don't walk up to every Talmud Chachem, someone who's a scholar or a great scholar, and call him tzaddik. Some some do for sure, but not everyone. What what makes a tzaddik a tzaddik? A tzaddik in, is like a like a saint, but it's it's not a Jewish word. It's it's Someone who's just completely immersed and given over to God and is drawing down godliness in the world in the most amazing, beautiful way. The answer is, what is that X factor? That X factor is Dveka's cut. That's the X factor. That's the being engaged actively in reciprocating love. And seeing it all around you. And engaging every opportunity and every person as a manifestation of God's love. So I want to give you an, another example. So Abraham, Abraham Avinu, the first Jew, right? Not the discoverer of monotheism, by the way. Adam Arishon, the first person, understood that there was one God. The whole world knew that there was one God for a while, right? Then it kind of got muddied, you know? We just started focusing on the physical universe, and we started making idols as go-betweens and things like this. But the concept of one God, everybody knew. Then it gets forgotten, it gets buried over. Then comes comes Abraham, who restores this concept of monotheism, right? But what did he restore? Now listen very closely. What is the greatness? What is the breakthrough of Abraham? So you can say, one God. He told the world about one God. Yeah, that was part of it. That was part of it. But that's not the full greatness of Abraham. Okay? Listen to this. So this is the Medrash Rabbah. On the beginning of Lech Lecha. Okay? This is really where Abraham gets introduced in the Torah. There's a reference to him a little bit before, but this is the full-on introduction of Abraham. God says, go to Israel, right? So, so what can this be compared to? So, this analogy is coming from Rabbi Yitzchak, okay? In the Medrash. And he says that Abraham's relationship, his experience of God, is analogous. It can be compared to a person who was passing from place to place and he saw a certain palace on fire. All right? And he said to himself, shall you say, can it be that this palace is without a supervisor? All right? We'll just take a break here just to make sure we understand what's going on. You see... When we started this talk, we talked about the, that one of the kind of like basic ways of understanding that there's a God in the world is just understanding the levels of complexity that surround us. That's, that that should be enough for most people, if if you think about that long enough. That should be enough for most people. Okay? But you see, that's, that's Abraham seeing a palace. He sees a palace. A palace is a very, very intricate structure. And he says, is it just that I see a palace and there's no owner? Right? No supervisor? Could it be that this world with, with this incredible level of structure like a palace doesn't have a supervisor? Okay, so that's, that's good so far, right? Except that's not what it says. It says he saw a palace on fire. See, what's this whole idea that the palace is on fire? So, that's a whole nother thing. Now, again, we're talking about the greatness of Abraham, how Abraham engaged God, how, what he brought to the world, okay? So, Abraham sees that there's a palace on fire, and he says, is it possible that, that there's no supervisor? In other words, your, your house, God, is burning down, Right? Where where are you? The world is completely messed up. We've had the flood. We've had the Tower of Babel. We have all sorts of corruption. The world is falling apart. That's the palace on fire. After he says that, he's asking himself, can it be that there's no supervisor? At that moment, you ready? Now we're back to the medrash. The owner of the palace peered out at him and said, I am the master of the palace. So, so, listen to this footnote. Right? The palace has not been abandoned without supervision. On the contrary, I, the owner himself, am present, and I am deliberately allowing my palace to burn. A lot of people think that God is only with us in the good times, but not the bad times. So, what, what Abraham is saying What his insight is, is that a lot of people think God created the world, but now that it's falling apart, it must be that God abandoned creation. So what Abraham is bringing to the world is that even amidst all the ups and downs of the world, God is still supervising the world. Now I'll tell you something that I heard from Rabbi Benzaking, something very fascinating. You see, let's talk about what fire is in halacha for a moment, and what it is in terms of the laws of Shabbos. Okay? Because fire has a very interesting role. So we know that there are 39 categories of what's called malacha, what's called work, which is a creative expression, right? And on Shabbos we're not doing any work. Basically, Shabbos is Gan Eden, Gan, the, the Garden of Eden, Gan Eden, right? It's like, it's like we're, we're accessing a level of perfection that's not completely manifest in the world yet, But still we're experiencing this level of the Garden of Eden in the here and now. Okay? Okay, all good. So in other words, we don't have to do these 39 categories of work. Remember, where do the 39 categories of work come from? From building the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert, which was a miniature of the perfected universe. Okay? So so the idea is that during the week, we are doing these 39 levels of work, because we are building the Mishkan. We are trying to transform this world into a completed dwelling place for God. Of course, God fills the world, but it hasn't been revealed yet. We want to make it the revealed dwelling place for God. So during the week, we're doing these 39 categories of work in order to build the world into a Mishkan, into a dwelling place. Okay, On Shabbos, because Shabbos has this level of perfection to it, we don't have to build the Mishkan, because it's already the Mishkan. We're already in the Garden of Eden. Hopefully that's clear. Okay? Anyway. But listen to this. One of the 30... But, but let me just tell you this one last thing. I've mentioned it before, but it's, it's an amazing thought. 39 is a weird number. 40 is a nice number. Right? 40 is a nice number. we got lots of 40s. 39, weird. Okay? So why aren't there 40 levels, 40 categories of work? Because the fortieth category of work is making something out of nothing, yeshmiayan, and a human being can't make something out of nothing. Only God can make something out of nothing. So therefore, we don't have to be careful on Shabbos of making something out of nothing because we're not even eligible for that category of work. So that's why there are thirty-nine levels of thirty-nine categories of work and not forty. By the way, just so you know. By the way. I heard from Rabbi Friedman that there's an interesting debate. We say that God made this world, that God made yesh mi'ayin. In other words, there was nothing and then God made something. God made this world. Right? But really, what did the Hasidim say? That, that before this world there was something, there was God, and that this world is nothing. <laughs> so what did God really do? He made nothing out of something. <laughs> so, but anyway, let's look at the role of fire in terms of the laws of Shabbos, the laws of creation. Because remember, the palace is on fire. What is the nature of fire? How could it be that God knows that his palace is burning and he's allowing it to burn? So what are the dual aspects of fire in halakha in terms of the laws of Shabbos? Interestingly, you can't make a fire on Shabbos. And one of the things, you know, of all the 39 categories of labor on Shabbos... The one that's specifically mentioned in the Torah is don't make a fire on Shabbos. That's the only one of the 39 or if you wish, 40 categories of labor on Shabbos that's specifically mentioned in the Torah. So it's very serious, obviously. Don't make a fire on Shabbos. Okay? Listen to this. One of the amazing things that they learn out from that is that Gehenna, hell, is closed on Shabbos. All the souls that are in, and by the way, Jews have a concept of hell. It's not eternal damnation, as other religions have it. But it's basically, in terms of the, um, the map of the cosmos, you have earth, hell, and then heaven. Okay? And it says in the Gomorrah that Gehenna is above earth. Okay? We tend to think of it like it's below earth, right? It's not. It's earth. Gehenna, and then Heaven. And basically, all souls pass through Gehenna on the way to Heaven. And it's a purification process, basically. And the amount of purification, so that's, there's a direct correlation between how much dry cleaning your soul needs, you know, to... Right? So, in other words, tzaddikim, zip through it, and other people, you know... It's a little longer, but it's temporary. Okay. But anyway, what's the headline here? Gehenna is closed on Shabbos, because you can't make a fire on Shabbos. So once a week, we get a vacation. And by the way, I'll tell you something very, very deep, which is that they say that certain Sadiqim have the key to Gehenna. And that one of the kavanahs, one of the high intentions of certain Sadiqim like the umshin of a Rebbe, for instance, who lives in Beit Pagan in Israel, Shlita, um, is that he keeps Shabbos, or one of the Kavanahs, is that to keep Shabbos longer, in order to keep hell closed longer. In order to bring relief to these neshamas, these souls in the next dimension. A very holy, amazing thing. To extend Shabbos with this idea in mind. You know? And by the way, according to Halakha, you can keep Shabbos till Tuesday night. You know? So, you don't have to, but... (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and I'll tell you something else. Anyone who doesn't keep Shabbos should still make Havdalah. Because theoretically, I don't know this, I'll have to ask a, a, a big rabbi about this, but theoretically, it seems to me that you're in Shabbos until you leave Shabbos. So you should say, at least, Baruch Hamavdil, Ben Kodesh Lechol, just so you can be outside of Shabbos, you know? I don't know, maybe Shabbos ends for everyone, unless you extend it, it's, it ends Saturday night, but who knows, maybe stay until t- Tuesday, if you don't leave it ever, I don't know. Anyway, that's a side point. But let's get, back to, let's get back to this idea. What is the role of fire in Halakha? So what did I tell you? I, I told you that all 39 categories that we're not supposed to do on Shabbos is creative activity. We're making something. Right? We're making something. One of the main ones, the one that's mentioned in the Torah is fire. Don't make a fire. Well, what does a fire do? How does a fire make something? Doesn't a fire just destroy something? Ah, so now you have a very interesting idea. Creative destruction. Creative destruction. Okay? What that means is, is that, let's say I have a building, and I want to make a new building over there. What do I have to do? I have to tear down the building. So is that destruction for destruction's sake? Or is that destruction for creation's sake? Alright? Or let's get more personal. Let's say I have an attribute or a, um, or a uh, habit that's not a good one. And I get rid of that. I destroy that. Am I just destroying something? Or am I bringing something much more beautiful and higher into existence? So sometimes, by removing and destroying, it's actually just part of the creative process. And interestingly, you just see it on an environmental level, that a lot of times when they have forest fires, that what that does is, it actually fertilizes the land, and it actually brings new and greater growth to that parcel of land. And it's very counterintuitive. Because seemingly it's a destructive act. And yet you see that it's a creative act. So God says, you know something? My palace is on fire and I'm right in the middle of it. I'm inside the palace while it's burning. Meaning to say, like with the burning bush, I'm with you in all of the fires in your life. But also, there's a purpose to the destruction that's taking place. And that it's the forebearer of new creation and new life that's coming into the world. And now I'm going to make a much stronger point, And we'll wrap it up with this. Here's the stronger point. God is telling you that the palace itself is still being created. The world is not finished yet. The world is not finished yet. If it was finished, it would just be a palace that's standing alone. The fact that it's on fire, that things are being torn down to make way for new things that are going to go up is telling you that not only is God involved in this world still, but this world is still in the process of being created. And that that's our role in engaging in the world. That's our role that God cares, that God's involved And that. We have a role in this world. You see, because even if you tell me, you know something, God is close to us and God is involved, and God hasn't abandoned it, and God's with me with the troubles, that's all great, but you know what? I want a job. What am I supposed to do? Why am I here? I need to know that. And the answer is to complete creation. Because there is a fire going on. And we do have this role. Rashi says about Noah, he says that he was of little faith, it's hard to understand. Noach is building this ark for 120 years, it says. Seems to me like he's got a lot of faith. So why did he have little faith? So Reb Shlomo explains, because he believed in God, but he didn't believe that God believed in him. He believed in God, but he didn't believe that God believed in him. And this is, that, this is what we have to understand that God believes in us, that there's a role for us, that the, that the world itself is still in the process of creation. Okay, have a good week.